And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow Americans, welcome back to another episode of the Inspired Service Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Scheinbaum, and I'm really thrilled to be joined today by Mr. Richard Sokolow, the Managing Director and Director of Research at Davidson Kempner Capital Management in New York City. Rich, thanks for taking the time to, to join us today. Thank you, Noah, for having me. We're, we're right before Thanksgiving here. It's Thanksgiving week. What are you thankful for in 2020? I'm thankful that as a country, even in our rough ways that it played out, we've been able to pull together as a country to struggle through what's not been an easy period in our history over this past year with the COVID crisis and, you know, begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel, development of a vaccine in, you know, a record period of time. I, I feel thankful for having, you know, the capacity to create something like that in response to a pandemic. On the other hand, COVID also showed us things that we don't do so well as a society. And I, I feel thankful that I think we have a shot at making some corrections as a society to um, the things that we did not do so well in response to the COVID crisis. Absolutely. Yeah. The vaccine really is remarkable to have something that is ready to go and hopefully distributed here in the beginning of the next couple of days in, in under a year's time. Let's take a step back for a second, Rich. So you lead research for Davidson Kempner. First of all, what does it mean to lead research for a global investment management firm? And then what in the world does that have to do with American COVID-19 response? Well, first of all, I run a team that I we're a global private investment fund. A wise man once said to me, what investing is, is giving expression to a point of view by the buying and selling of a security. What goes on in the world matters to investing activities. So what you find is when you have a global crisis, as we are still going through, it has impact on the economy, the world economy. It has impact on companies. You know, as everybody's seeing, you know, airline companies are suffering tremendously. Companies like Amazon that deliver goods to your door, which is tremendously convenient to have, important to have at a time like COVID, are doing very well. We have to dig deep and broad in terms of things that are impacting on things that we are investing in. So I, I run a team that works together on a global basis, with people with a mixture of backgrounds, journalistic, business intelligence, uh, government intelligence, people with different experience from having been and uh, lived in different geographic areas of the world in Latin America and in Asia and China, quantitative analysts who can bring all that expertise to bear in answering questions that emerge out of the investment process. So when COVID hits, earlier in the year, it had a big impact on what I did for a living as an, working for an investment fund. But it also had an impact on me as just as a citizen, as a human being living in New York, where the first big wave of COVID hit the United States very heavily. And also on a personal level, you know, I have family here, friends here, co-workers, like many other New Yorkers and Americans experience the impact of the first wave of this and, you know, the way I experience is I have a, my sister-in-law is an emergency room doctor at um, Brooklyn Hospital. And, um, you know, I talk to her regularly and what was going on in the healthcare system and in the city in general was, you know, horrendous. I mean, they had, they had to bring refrigerated units to the parking lot at many of the hospitals because the number of people who were dying was just growing beyond the capacity of their internal morgue to hold it. And then at the same time was hearing stories about how, you know, emergency room doctors and nurses and technicians couldn't get access to basics of things, PPE, 
face masks, protective gear that they needed as healthcare workers. And, you know, it seemed both crazy and outrageous and sad, all wrapped it together. And the question that raised in my mind is, what can we do about it? Thanks for taking us back to those those early days. I think it is, uh, you know, we maybe have a willful desire to kind of forget what it was like when, when things were at their worst. And yet here we are in November and the numbers are are across the country worse than they've ever been. Maybe it's not as in our face day, day by day in New York City, but this is, the struggle is absolutely still on, ongoing. And right. so as you ask that, that question, what can, what can we do to help? Or what can I do to help? Take, take us through, how, how did you think about the answer for you, yourself to that question? How did you think about what you could personally yeah. contribute to the fight? Well, it literally grew, grew out of a conversation, again, I was just saying with my sister-in-law, who was, you know, upset, struggling with this. And I said, I, I got to be able to do something here to help just to get some N95 masks to her, her hospital. So I started making some calls to people I knew. Um, um, and uh, one of which was my colleagues I work with out of Hong Kong. And her father is in medical supply business, device business in China, where they produce, you know, a lot of masks uh, and PPE in general. And I started talking to her about seeing if we could source some, uh, you know, I talked to some other people I knew and um, turned out a friend actually through my daughter's school had another contact of his who had a warehouse filled with masks. And actually, interestingly, one of the things that spurred it at the time was a conversation I had with the then uh, actually still is the number two at the National Security Council, Matt Pottinger, who said, you know, there's masks used in construction, the same masks, pretty much the same as the ones used in, in medicine. And given that there's not much construction going on, um, maybe people can just get some of those. So anyway, we, I was able to, through a couple of contacts, source masks and got 20,000 delivered to the back door, literally, of Brooklyn Hospital, where the emergency room is. And to my sister-in-law, and she was like <laughs> amazed and so thankful for that. And so then through that, we, I kept trying to pursue this. Is there ways of getting more masks into the country? New York State at that point was going through the crisis and um, I knew some people who were close to the governor's office. And so I started looking around and um, we, tr- we did identify some factories in, in China that could make available and sell to the state of New York masks. I met an amazing, amazing nonprofit called the MITRE Corps, which is a very large federally funded nonprofit that runs many of the um, sanctioned federal laboratories in the country. And they have a multi-billion dollar budget. And uh, I met Richard Byrne, the senior VP there, who through their networks had identified, you know, manufacturers of masks in China. Uh, and they were trying to make these available to different states that were starting to have a real problem. We're having difficulty, frankly, intersecting with the states. Turned out this is when there was this global competition for these masks coming from Europe and also uh, U.S. and elsewhere in the world. And the prices of these things were being driven up and it was very difficult. And um, unless you were willing to put the cash on line, um, pay for these things now and agree to it now, it was difficult to actually source these masks. And the problem is bureaucracies like we have in New York State for in normal times, things that make total sense in terms of good procurement practices weren't able to close on these things. So what Minor Core did was they took their own balance sheet and took their risk um, working with some major corporations that did a lot of manufacturing in China and were willing to take a risk on a million masks and um, had purchased a million but had no place to bring them to. So I worked with Minor Core with our contacts in New York State. People just know through life living in New York and people I've worked with over the years. 
and we got them delivered to the state of New York early in the crisis, basically with the deal being that MitreCorp is fronting the money for it. And just if you receive delivery and they meet your satisfaction, that you pay them back, which the New York State did do. So we started to do that also with ventilators early on became a big issue in the crisis here in New York was the lack of ventilators. And that was at a time when probably doctors were overprescribing the use of ventilators for um, people who had serious cases of COVID. But at any event, that was identified as the important need. And again, worked with another contact who was in the medical supply business here, who had resources and sources in China. And we were able to identify and find uh, thousands of ventilators for the state of New York. And then um, as over the course of time, I, you know, we were meeting different people who were involved in the issue on, in different shapes and forms, including um, H.R. McMaster, the former National Security Advisor, who's now at the Hoover Institute at Stanford, uh, Noah, yourself, and great work you're doing. And we started working together, this kind of disparate grouping of people who wanted to do something and were trying to figure out what to do and how to do it. So we just literally started meeting regularly and started, you know, identifying different things that concretely that we could do. So, for example, HR made a comment about how the, the, out of the, coming out of the military, you have this amazing network of doctors, people who have, you know, both been field doctors in emergencies and um, stood up emergency hospital situations in Afghanistan and in Germany, you know, who knew how to work in a crisis, who were accomplished doctors, and with them had people that they could draw upon. And some actually got placed into important positions in, on various state levels. For example, in the state of Washington, Admiral Rocky Bono, Dr. Rocky Bono, who had been you know, high up in, uh, in the Navy's uh, medical establishment, became the advisor to the governor of the state of Washington through the crisis. And there was others like that, that we formally helped place into government agencies that had needs for support at this moment. It really was amazing how this thing kind of took on a life of its own, right? And it started kind of almost kitchen conversations or, or informal conversations. The next thing you know, we had 20 people on kind of twice weekly uh, Zoom calls, and that turned into hundreds of people once or twice a week on on webinars to learn from the people who just a few weeks ago weren't experts, but just kind of rolled up their sleeves and hopped in. It was amazing to kind of see how this this all snowballed. And I, I wanted to just highlight two things that you said that I think are really, really interesting about kind of as you surveyed the assets that you had available at your disposal mm-hmm. to kind of make a difference here. The, the thing that stands out to me is just the the value of not, and they don't have to be best friends, but even loose ties personal and professional ties that you had here in New York and abroad, just the ability to think differently about what those contacts might be able to bring to the table and to ask some questions. You know, asking the question was half the battle of even, you know, hey, could you help? And at a time when many of us were being told, really the whole country was being told that the best possible thing we could do was stay home, stay indoors, stay on our couch, to think a little bit differently about what was possible during that time went such a long way. And, and one of the, you know, the reflections that I've had is, is the way that we can help our country, our government to think differently about what we ask of our mm. citizens. You didn't have to be asked, but I bet if we had put out that call, just like in, in New York, when we saw the governor put out the call, hey, if you're a medical professional, we need your help. In the early days of this effort, you and I saw tens of thousands of people sign up, but we weren't prepared to, to absorb them. How do we as a country think differently about what, what our citizens are capable of and make asks that are ultimately empowering of our citizens, you know, as opposed to asks that I think generated a lot of resentment that we still see to today around shutdowns and around staying indoors. 
That's a very important question and a complex one, I think, to answer. But I do think as a matter of the ethos of this country, actually it was something I think that was critical to our country and our history that we're not as good at as we used to be as a society. But I think we need to work at getting better at it again. Remember, our country was developed through the movement West and people moved before there were governments and people had to create solutions to problems that they had to deal with, whether um, food, water, shelter, and the like, and building community. I, I think it's an I, I think it's still a very strong impulse in the country. We still have a, if you look around the world, we have a very big NGO, nonprofits, you know, sector in this country. Volunteerism is still a big part of our country. The question is, is you know, you got to create structures to be able to channel that and. This is an area I think we, we don't do as well as, as we had once upon a time, or given the complexity of our society. There was things we tried, some things worked, a bunch of things didn't work, and that's life, you know, trial and error is always important. But I, I do think as a society, we need to create better mechanisms to channel that energy. It's interesting. I've been involved with a nonprofit, which I helped found in New York, that's over 30 years old, called the All Stars Project. It's a program that supports the development of inner city young people using performance, a performatory approach built totally by volunteers over the years. One thing we've always discovered is a lot of people when asked to help will say yes. I've always been amazed at the percentages of people who, who will do that. The question is finding things and ways to have people who have busy lives, who are raising families, going to work, who may not, you know, don't have full time to do it, but can give, you know, some significant time, can contribute financially to give effectively. And developing those mechanisms, if you will, is a complex activity. It's complex for a nonprofit, such as the one I've been involved in, the All-Stars, and it's extremely complicated for governments, and I would argue governments probably have even a harder time doing it. They're used to having a lot of financial resources and large bureaucracies that don't necessarily meld well with people coming in to help out, wanting to pitch in. There's work to be done on that. You know, hopefully we won't have another pandemic in my lifetime. More importantly, hopefully not in my children's lifetime. I have two young children. Probably they'll see something like this or some version of it again in their lifetime. They have a, obviously there are crisis situations. We're actually pretty decent at crises. We have mechanisms for that. We have the Red Cross, National Guard. You know, most crises we actually tend to respond fairly well to because uh, we've developed ways to do that with the occasional blips here and there. And the pandemic was a curveball. It was a different kind of crisis that we've been experiencing. It wasn't a hurricane or earthquake or like, you know, so I do think relative to a health crisis, there's what are the learnings there in terms of a pandemic health crisis in this country? I think that's a different kind of one has different learnings, but in terms of being able to, you know, en enable people who want to help out and find ways to do that's a, that's productive is complicated and also important. Absolutely. And and it raises the question of, you know, if you were a government secretary, if you were in health and human services, or if you were in CDC or something, and you backed up a truck to the, <laughs> behind uh, you know, the, the Brooklyn Hospital and started unloading masks, would that have been acceptable? Could you have done that? Uh, and, and, it, and it does, you know, raise some questions of not just because there is a problem doesn't mean it necessarily requires a governmental solution. I think we can mm -hmm. all agree that there were pieces of this uh, pandemic response where government assistance was uh, essential. Government coordination was an imperative, but that doesn't mean that the entirety of the response needed to be 
um, government led and government driven and, and reasonable people will disagree about how much, you know, where on the spectrum we should fall as a country. Um, mm -hmm. but I, but I am curious about given your experiences and from material to human resources, where would you like to see that line? Like, where do you think the private sector can uniquely contribute and, and where we should leave room for kind of the volunteerism mm -hmm. and the private participation versus the things that really the government should be, uh, kind of taking on? Yeah, I don't know if I have a line per se. There's a couple of things I found interesting. And I think we learned that some of the things our country does really amazingly well. And we also at the same time learned about some of the things our country does amazingly badly. You know, and in some ways it's the same or similar attributes that contribute to both. So it's hard to parse out. We did Operation Warp Speed was amazing. Remember, prior to the, this vaccine, the quickest of vaccines that have been ever been able to come online from beginning to roll out was, I think it was four years. And that was considered amazing at the time. This, as we said, we're doing in under a year. Amazing. And I think it's because the designers of that program actually did a very, very good job of figuring out how to both capture the abilities of our private pharmaceutical companies, which are world-class in terms of innovation. People have criticisms of them in terms of price that you have to pay for basic medicines for life, but that's a different kind of question. But in terms of developing medicines and vaccines, unbelievable, very creative, very sophisticated, world-class. The issue was identified early on, and this came out of you know the administration, was that there's a lot of costs that you have to, willingness to invest in going down certain roads before you know whether or not a vaccine is going to work or not. And what the government said was, the federal government, which I thought was the area that they did something very, very well, was say, we, we the federal government, will absorb that cost for X number of companies. We'll designate which ones. But you throw your money into the development of this thing. We will guarantee you that you will be made whole on that. You also start producing these drugs, these vaccines, even in advance of final approval, knowing full well that you might have to deep six, you know, lots of vials of these things. What we didn't do well was organize our population nationally to do the things that we can do to support, you know, minimizing the impact of this disease. I think that in part was frankly due to um, lack of political leadership. It's also some of the challenges in our society, which is a, you know, federal system. You know, states have tremendous power in our country and there's certain ways the federal government is limited in terms of its powers. Would have been difficult for any president. But, you know, I've been through several crises in my lifetime, including the last financial crisis. And sometimes what happens is people did form around the president who then, in the case of the last financial crisis, turned it over to the Secretary of the Treasury, Paulson, then provided you know strong central government leadership in dealing with the financial crisis. Now, interestingly, when it comes to the financial sector, we have mechanisms in place that are are, are federal. You know, both from a regulatory and also the, the Fed stimulus, those kinds of things. We're able to do a lot. Healthcare, interestingly enough, the nature of healthcare in our country, it's very decentralized, right? So it's state by state. Within a state, you have municipal and public nonprofits. You have now commercial hospitals. It's a very divided across the country. And, you know, and one can argue that also leads to innovation and whatever. But in a crisis, it turns out not to be a great, great, great way to operate. So I do think we need to have a mode in this country which we can switch into when we do get this kind of medical emergency, you know, national or just part of the country, where we can switch into a mode where our system changes from being competitive and, you know, very separated to one that starts rowing together. Um, and, you know, that, that's a governmental 
process that needs to take place in terms of creating that kind of capacity and models. Um, you know, on the volunteer side, um, it would be great then within the context of that to then, you know, have ways to draw upon and bring people in on a volunteer basis. But it's hard to do that just at that moment. So one of the things we've all talked about was creating some sort of different kinds of volunteer cores, you know, uh, maybe of medical professionals and, and technicians and the like who can, you know, be, uh, it's almost like a, being in the reserves, you know, that when there is a need, you can be called upon to help out and maybe even be moved around the country to where there is need. That's something that has got to be created, uh, can't be done just on the fly. It's complex, it's technical, and it needs to be able to interact well and work well with, with governments on that. Absolutely. And, you know, um, certainly the one of the key missions of the Civilian Corps and, uh, and why we founded the organization is to see that aspiration become more of a reality in the country. And certainly, there, there's rarely been a platform that makes as, com- as clear, as compelling and as urgent a case as COVID has made. And so I think that the moment is certainly now to, to harness the enthusiasm, the goodwill and, and the desire of the American people to contribute, uh, to participate in our society. On, on the flip side of that, uh, I'd like to ask you a question about, you know, thinking about the, the PPE and the resources, the market. You're, you're in an investment firm. I'm a, uh, you know, generally a fan of markets and, a, and a, yep. you know, as an American. That said, in this pandemic, we saw, you know, an example of rampant competition for critical resources right. um, for which there were no great solutions, whether those were masks, whether those were ventilators, whether those are medical uh, providers and frontline healthcare workers. In all cases, we saw really cut cutthroat competition between hospitals and between states for those critical resources. Is that, do you think, is that the market functioning the way as designed or, or do we have, is there more to be done there? I, it's interesting. This is a question I've faced for many years of my life as a in the hedge fund world, uh, investing world, and also just as a private citizen, I think there are things that markets do fantastically well. And I think there are things that they do really badly. For example, I'm really glad that back in 1850 something, the city council of New York purchased or you know, took this big box of land right in the middle of Manhattan and said, we're going to build a park here. So, <laughs> Central Park. It's one of the things that makes New York a great city. That would never have happened through market forces. On the other hand, does government need to be involved in the making of clothes and design? No, obviously not. So I think markets can be tremendously important and valuable. I, I just think in certain kinds of situations, and we need to keep talking about what those situations are, they're less than ideal. It turns out a pandemic, global healthcare crisis, turns out they're not so good. Not an ideal situation. And that's true, look, in the financial sector, sometimes that's the Fed is there to sometimes step in to be a guarantor, collective guarantor of the functioning of key aspects of the market system, in this case, the financial system. Those things have got to keep running for markets to function. Going back to, I do think we need to have a capacity for this kind of situation for government to be able to step in more actively and intervene. And there should have been some sort of national system for procuring critical PPE and other you know, healthcare devices and a way to distribute them. We did not have that mechanism set up to do that. There was supposed to be a, a store of these kind of drugs and PPE for emergencies. And there is, problem is, it was based on there being a crisis in a couple of regions of the country, not the entire country. Two is you have to keep working at maintaining these, these stocks of these things so they stay in good working condition. And that's 
that's a commitment to do that. And that's an expense. And 10 years goes on, it hasn't been a pandemic. And people say, well, they lose interest in maintaining it and funding it. And then in year 12, you need them after right after you've cut the funding for it. So it's, it's a it's a discipline needs to be taken. And we need to keep working at and that's an area that government needs to do a bunch of work on, you know, requirements for states to have a certain amount of supplies on hand in case the, there's a need for different kinds of crises. You know, that that's an interesting place to pick up this idea of how do you maintain attention and avoid the desire to just kind of move on to the next thing. When I think it would be, we all have to acknowledge there is massive COVID fatigue in the country right now. I feel it. I'm sure you yeah. feel it. It's just, there, there are days you wake up and you're like, gosh, is this really, do we still have to think about this? Do we still have to talk about this? Do we still have to, you know, modify behavior because of it? And the answer is yes. But it's, you know, I think it's understandable why people are just exhausted from mm-hmm. from the last nine months. Yeah. The, the, the question I have is, so if you think about the, and even we actually saw during kind of the hyper accelerated response period, jumping from one thing to the next, one week we'd be talking about uh, medical personnel and the next week it'd be how are we going to do contact tracing? Right? Mm-hmm. And then it was how we're going to do vaccine distribution. And then another wave hits and you kind of cycle back to the beginning again. And and that kind of hopping from thing to thing, you know, I think in many ways prevents you from doing any one to the full extent that it should be completed and really institutionalizing the learning yeah. and the processes given where we are as a country, what do we need to do to, to continue to maintain attention on this pandemic, even as we start to roll out a vaccine and people are so eager to, to get yeah. back on with their lives? What do we do to, to, to maintain some of the learning? It's interesting. I think one of the things that's exposed is how, how dysfunctional or poorly funded and behind the times our public health care system have become in the country. And I, I, I'm not talking about nationalized medicine. I'm talking about the, those people whose job it is is to work on local pandemics or, you know, health crises that occur, you know, which actually do occur in the country from measles to AIDS to whatever over the course of time. For example, I just heard stories from Rocky Bono and others about, I mean, the technology was so far behind with the public health care network. I mean, to get the data, for example, one of the biggest pieces of work that uh, Dr. Deborah Burke, who heads up the Corona Task Force has been working on, she's literally traveled cross country by car to 42 states and has been meeting with local health officials and governors and has literally built on her back a reporting system so we have much better data on this stuff. It's crazy how bad, it turns out, the data systems are in this arena. I mean, people were still faxing in data. You know, if you could create an Excel spreadsheet, send it, you can, you know, you, you work with computer and software. There's some really basic stuff one could do on just in terms of getting the data. So I do think there needs to be some sort of on a national level, a reinvigorating and work done on the, the network of local public health offices around the country, which need to be able to work better on a coordinated basis when a crisis. CDC needs some serious reform. I mean, we CDC have been the gold standard in the world, and they just they dropped the ball on this one. And they began with testing, where they created a, a way of testing that was to bespoke and not industrial enough, which has put us behind early on in the process. So I think there's a real examination of the agencies that we do have in the country, both on a federal level and national, and how they need to be reinvigorated, reorganized, and learn to work together on a national basis, even though these are local facilities. So on a national level, I think I think that makes sense. What about on an individual level, right? You've, you've been involved in the nonprofit and volunteerism yeah. worlds with, with All Stars kind of 
for a very long time. Given that this has been, obviously, you know, you've probably felt many times you're working two or three jobs simultaneously. How, how do you see that taking this forward? What's this experience meant to you personally? And yeah. is it going to affect how you carry on going forward? It probably will affect all of us. We're going to discover what that looks like over the next 10 years. But just one thing I do want to say, I do think we need some sort of medical, you know, medical professional reserve in this country where people can, you know, in the time of crisis, bring out those skills. I know you did some good work at identifying people who have different kinds of skills. Like one of the areas right now is there's a shortage of vent technicians um, that you know, people can run sophisticated ventilators. But just being able to have that kind of information logged and available so that people and people to be agree as a volunteer to be a part of that kind of service, you know, that maybe once a year you train for it and it could be some sort of online simulation. So you know where to go and what to do. I think those mechanisms need to be put in place. I mean, as for me is I, you know, I will ask myself the question, looking at what's going on in our country, what are the critical problems of our country and what can I do to help make a difference here? It's funny. I'm a later in life parents. So I'm having the opportunity to work with two very young people, Holly uh, and Violet, ages five and eight, and working on the question of what do I want to teach these two wonderful young daughters I have in terms of who they are and values and sense of morality, if you will. And I think as a value system, it's important to, for all of us to be asking ourselves the question is, you know, what needs to happen in our country to make it a better place to be and live? And and to function, you know, what's going wrong? What's, what are we doing well? We're we not going so well. And what can I do to make a difference? And I, I, there's no formulaic answer to that question. The world changes, our country's changing, conditions are changing, we're discovering things as a grouping. I do think an overarching thing we need to work at getting better at is um, how we function, you know, as a group, as socially. We, we are a people, and there's been a lot of polarization in our country. It was disturbing to see that the wearing of the mask became a political statement. But we need to learn to work better as groupings of people. It's interesting doing this work, as you and I did together, Noah, with HR McMaster and others. I, I bet you if you asked, you know, went through that grouping and tried to find, figure out what people's, quote, politics are, it'd be all over the map in terms of party affiliations yeah. or references, views on foreign policy, whatever. I bet you there'd be a lot of disagreements, but we were able to come together quite quickly, and that was never an issue, to accomplish something that we thought was very important to accomplish. That's one thing I felt very proud about the activity that our informal group did accomplish, was to work together, roll up our sleeves. And I think as a society, we need to work at getting better at doing that across the political divides that now exist, and work on what works, what works for us as a country, and get better at figuring that out. So that's something that I, I feel committed to working on and devoting my energies to that, whether it be in the arena of working with inner city young people and they're falling behind what's going on in society and not being able to move with the growth and development in our society to other issues, whether it be a, a COVID pandemic or something else that comes along the road. Well, Rich, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. T- taking stock of where we are, thinking about where we want to be, and then taking concrete actions to to bring about that reality is is exactly where we need to end up on a personal level that's that's the country i i would want to live in we've got to let you go here in a moment just want to say you know on a a personal level it's been an absolute privilege to be able to work with you on on some of these efforts and and see all of the, the energy and the 
connectivity and the get stuff done uh, mentality you bring to it. And I know that our, our country and our communities are, are better off for the work that, that you've done. So I, I want to thank you on behalf of myself and, and the Civilian Corps for everything you've done. The, the final question is, is there, is there any message or, or any last thought you'd like to share with our listeners? I think it's really great when people take those things which disturb you the most and devote some time to think about what you might be able to do about it and actually work at it, work at trying to figure out what's the best way that you can invest your time, your energy, if you want to contribute as well financially. But really take that as a serious activity for all of us become better givers, if you will, not as an abstraction, but as a concrete activity that you can participate in. And don't wait for somebody to come tap you on the shoulder and saying, here's what you should do. It's a complex question that I think all of us need to participate in figuring out what the answers are. I, I appreciate that, Rich. Um, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for, for your generosity of time and insight. Uh, and thanks for everything that you've, that you've been doing and that I know you can continue to do in the fight. Um, and we, we really appreciate it. No, it was a pleasure. Thank you for asking me to do this. I was happy to spend the time with you talking about this. For more episodes of the Inspired Service Podcast, please visit us at www.inspiredservice.org and subscribe on iTunes.